History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our After Show podcast, where we look back at the most recent episode, number 78, Plumbing in the Himalayas during the 1950s. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theatre. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas? Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the mountain to my molehill. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Oh, I like that one. That's a good one. I feel mountainous today because I've put on a lot of weight, so I'm massive. <laughs> I was thinking more ragged-faced. Also that. Thank you. <laughs> but we are joined as ever by the Dalai Daddio of dungarees. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. I take offence at that. The Dalai, the Daddio, or the Dungarees? The Dungarees, of course. I'd love to see you in Dungarees. Well, you won't. Now, Peter, I suffered severe respiratory distress at the summit of Everest this week after someone switched out my oxygen for helium, and as such, I have completely forgotten everything you said during the episode. So, would you mind reminding me what happened in, let's say, 60 seconds? Yes, Ryan, I can remind you. But when would you like me to do it? I would like you to do it. Now. We travelled to the mighty mountains of the Himalayas to discover plumbing. We peered into the deepest toilet in the world in Tibet and discovered what to do with the bucket of ash. We also met Griffith Pugh, the unsung hero of the successful expedition to climb the world's highest mountain, Everest, and discovered the importance of good plumbing to provide you with your oxygen. We also met Lobsang Rampa, the llama who wrote a bestseller about his early life in Tibet, with the tiny caveat that he was actually a plumber who'd never even left the UK. We went high, we went low, and we definitely discovered plumbing in the Himalayas in the 1950s. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes! I remember now, and what an episode it was, Pete. I think you navigated some tricky terrain and came out on top. You gave me at least ten zings to think about. Can you deal with ten things at once? Ten zings. <laughs> oh, I see. I Okay. And best of all, through sure persuasion, you convinced me that the Himalayas are summit to see. Oh, I, that actually was not your worst work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But what does it matter what I think? My opinion, Pete, is not worthy of a bucket of ash. We are, of course, here for the opinion of just one man, Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before you reveal your final grade, let's start with your first impressions of episode 78. Uh, first of all, your puns have been noted for future reference. <laughs> Come on, ten zings to think about. That was, that was pretty I clever. I like that one. <laughs> My first impressions were Pete isn't very good at his pronunciation. 
Oh. I think that is a well-established fact. I'm in no way going to challenge that. Well, I thought the mountain range was called the Himalaya. I feel like we covered that off. But the one that you didn't cover, the name of the mountain. Everest? Yes. Sir George Everest would not have been very happy. Oh, oh damn. <laughs> I did not know that. It was actually, actually his name was George Everest. It was pronounced Everest. Mount Everest. I did not know that. Well, you've added to the show there, Paul, so I hope that's reflected in the grade. <laughs> um, that's slightly backwards, isn't it? You were wrong, so I give... Oh, OK. I quite liked Everest. He came out of that story looking quite good. When I first went down that road and found that it was uh, named after another British guy, I was like, oh, here we go. But then as to him saying, no, you shouldn't call it that, I thought it was quite impressive. Yes, it was sort of not what you expect, but it's probably because, uh, you know, you can't you can't get the th sound out in Hindi. So Everest, he would, he would have been very happy because they get it wrong all the time. Yeah, it's just, it was just nice to tell a story that wasn't British people running around and being completely self-centred. We're not all self-centred, you know. Well, quite so. And that was nice. It was nice to be able to tell. Are there many other mountains that are named after people? Mount McKinley was one that's not called Mount McKinley anymore, is it? It's Denali. I believe Mont Blanc was named after a brand of pen. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Peter, I would like to talk about your choice of the national animal for the Himalayas. I chose the Yeti and I chose it specifically because I thought you might enjoy it, Ryan. I very much did enjoy talking about it. <laughs> I didn't. Well, good news, Paul, because guess what I've got some facts about? <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so let's talk Yeti. No tea. So the first reported sighting of the Yeti was in 1889, and it was by a British mountaineer called Lieutenant Colonel H.P.S. Moore. No, I'm not allowing that. <laughs> Do you mean not allowing Keep going, it? Ryan, you're making me look good. That's a fact. <laughs> no, it's not. It is a fact, and a journalist heard no, about his story. Uh, no, get his rank correct. Oh, Lieutenant Colonel H.P.S. Thank you. Lieutenant Colonel H.P.S. Moore, and he was up climbing, he saw the Yeti, and uh, he came back down and told a bunch of people, and a journalist heard about this, and he published an article about it in which it was the first time that uh, the Yeti had been referred to as the abominable snowman. After that, there have been plenty of eyewitness accounts, but no smoking gun evidence, I'll give you that. Right. Uh, some llamas uh, in the Himalayas, they believe that the Yeti lives in a different plane of existence and uh, is like a spirit like creature. It can pop in and out of our dimension, which they say is why it's so hard to find. But there is one monastery in Nepal which claims to have a Yeti hand. And in 1959, adventurer Peter Byrne, he visited the temple to see the hand. And while looking at it, he removed one of the fingers. They're never going to notice. And uh, he replaced (laughs) it, though, because he's quite canny, with a human finger that he'd taken there on purpose. He just sort of swapped it out. (laughs) It just happened to have a human finger on it. Well, he he had eight on him, surely. Yeah. Now, what do you think you do with that finger that you've stolen, if you're him 
Sell it. Take it on the road. You give it to a Hollywood superstar because the actor Jimmy Stewart had been in India out hunting and he came to see this finger and he was like, look, I'll take this to London because I'm flying there next. So he gave the finger to his wife, Gloria, who hid it in her lingerie (laughs) because because she didn't want like the customs officers to see it. And so they got the finger back to England. They took it to the Royal College of Surgeons in London. They tested it and found it was a human finger. (laughs) So... (laughs) Was, uh, so that's not a Yeti's either. There is a theory that the Yeti is actually a bear because in 2011, scientists discovered an unknown species of bear living in the Himalayas. The first new species of bear to be discovered in over 150 years. Closely related to the polar bear, it weighs up to 400 pounds. It has thick reddish brown fur and it's found living in the high altitudes of the Himalayas. So it could well be that a lot of these myths are based around this bear, which up until very recently we didn't even know about. But not everyone thinks that the Yeti is a bear because, as I mentioned in the episode, Sir David Attenborough, the naturist, (laughs) He has been recorded as saying that he believes the Yeti could be a long-lost primate. So in an interview in 2013, he said... That there there is a real possibility that there might be something in the abominable snowman mystery. In the where, sorry? The abominable snowman mystery. Oh, yeah. In the 30s, there was a German called von Königswald, um, and he went into um, a Chinese um, chemist, apothecary's shop, and among them were some fossil teeth, about four or five times the size of our molar. It had to be uh, the molar of a giant ape that's about, would stand if it was blown up in proportion, something like 10 feet to 12 feet tall. I- immense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just have a suspicion there certainly was one, a giant ape there, and I think it's not impossible that one would survive. So there you go. I mean, if you're looking for anyone that is going to give you some confidence that Yeti exists, Sir David Attenborough surely is the man. As a counterpoint to that, Ryan, the Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to reach the top of Everest, along with Tenzin Norgay, in, in 1960-61, he had another expedition to the Himalayas, which was specifically, in part, to hunt for Yeti. Funnily enough, we went with Griffith Pugh again, Griffith Pugh being the scientist medic who was a key to the success of the Everest expedition. Mm. In reality, he was using the Yeti hunt as a means to raise finances for a journey that was actually about some scientific investigations they wanted to do. So this expedition was kind of cross-financed by this kind of crazy chase for uh, for the Yeti, uh, also in the Himalayas. Um, the big footprints that they found, they discovered, actually, if you trace them to a shaded area, it was normal-sized footprints that have melted out to be bigger because of the heat of the sun. Uh-huh. So uh, he came away having found absolutely nothing, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm telling you, there are still people out there that do believe in the Yeti. And if you do decide to go, there is a Yeti-themed resort Uh, which has been built as sort of part hotel, part museum. And apparently it caters to all those who want to go out and capture a Yeti. That is an incredibly (laughs) niche location. (laughs) There's lots of people who want to find a Yeti. I guess, I guess. I kind of want to go there now, actually. So I guess it's done its job. There you go. What do you think, Paul? Are you convinced? No. Now, I need to pick you up on something. 
Oh, probably just to pick me up to say, well done. That was correct. <laughs> he often does that. <laughs> Famous for it. No, I, I just wanted to pick you up on the uh, top of Mount Everest is not the highest point on Earth. Oh, interesting. <gasps> Did Pete get it wrong? I was getting his, getting his sting ready. <laughs> you, you will actually find that Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador is higher from the centre of the Earth. Is that to do with the equator and the shape of the Earth? Correct. I get a point! I don't think this is a quiz. <laughs> no, but, but, but it, the Earth, because of the spinning of the Earth, it sort of effectively it bulges at the equator. And that equator actually means the top of this Mount Chimborazo is about a mile further up than uh, Everest is. Well, I did actually explain all that in the episode, but Ryan cut it out. So uh, we, you, we left it implied what? that... <laughs> don't you blame my editing? <laughs> no, I did not make that point. Uh, but I think I was referring to sea level. I didn't say it, but uh, that was definitely what I meant. Didn't say it, did you? Mm. So... It wasn't, I didn't feel it needed saying because we always refer to above sea level. But yeah, if you did... Well, if you didn't say that then, then... Obviously, Mauna Kea becomes the tallest mountain in the world. Does does it? <laughs> Paul, can I just push the button? I'm so itchy for it right now. Oh, well, yes, press the button. <laughs> Peter, Peter, Peter got it wrong. 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 But look, talking of high things, Pete, I believe that you want to talk about geese. I do want to talk about geese. That is an excellent segue because, as you know, I had a bit about geese that we didn't have time for in the main episode. That's right. Uh, and so I've done the research. So gosh darn it, I'm bringing it to the verdict, whether you like it or not. Now, the bar-headed goose is a goose that crosses the Himalayas on their migration. This is one of the highest altitude migrations in the world. And it's partly thanks to their plumbing. So there was a woman called Lucy Hawkes, who was a postdoctoral researcher at Bangor University. She had a team of 13 scientists and they tracked a bunch of geese, basically. They captured 25 geese in India, mm -hmm. satellite tagged them and then let them do their northbound migration. Then they captured another 38 geese in Mongolia for the southbound trip. And they found that basically the geese could pass over the Himalayas in one day. Wow. Climbing between 4,000 and 6,000 metres in seven to eight hours. So all of that effort of the human being dragged Dragging himself up and these guys just flap across in 24 hours. Do they carry their own oxygen? They do not. So they have denser capillaries uh, than other animals. Um, what? Sorry, what does the capillaries do? They That takes blood to your muscles. So there'd be, there'd be more capillaries in the lungs to, to convert the oxygen into haemoglobin. And then there'd be more capillaries at the other end to turn that into energy. Nice. And another interesting part of their plumbing is it turns out that they have, they've got these air sacs that allow the flow of oxygen in the lung or flow of air through the lungs. You and I breathe in and we breathe out. And that means we're always kind of mixing the air we breathed in with the air we breathe out. But the bar-headed goose and many other birds have uh, lungs that have a basically a one-way system. So the oxygen in the air is always passing over a new surface. So instead of breathing in, it all mixing up and breathing out. It kind of flows in a one-way circuit. So you're always getting fresh air over the surface of the lung all of these things add up and it turns out they can extract at least twice as much oxygen per unit of time from the air than we do but I, I just think it's amazing that anything can get over the Himalayas in a day. That's just astonishing. And uh, it's thanks to all these very, you know, there's a bunch of different adjustments that the geese have managed to make. And they're 
plumbing is really well designed to enable them to get the most of the uh, rare oxygen that they have available. Nice. I was surprised by how much I had that I didn't even wasn't even able to use. I thought I was going to be absolutely stuck for stuff, but it turned out to be a very fertile topic. We're, we've got to talk about this plumber. That was wild, wasn't it? I could not believe it when I found that. <laughs> he was son of a plumber. He was son of a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> I had a real soft spot for him that he was totally uncovered and exposed. And it made no difference to him at all. He carried on. He wrote his books. He just kept going, except for obviously the book that his cat wrote for him. <laughs> I just, I love the guy by the end of him. So do we think that he was unwell mentally or do we think he was just eccentric or on drugs or something like what was the inspiration for all this just bored i genuinely don't know because he spent his life doing it <laughs> he doesn't come across as someone with a huge amount of malice in the tale does he yeah. uh, uh, so it's Henry harrison i'm not having this i'm getting a private detective to look into it <laughs> yeah that was, <laughs> i was and it, i hadn't even realized that this one guy was the guy who wrote seven years in tibet as well so that it turned into quite the story i started great it's well worth a read actually rather than the film it's worth a good read that well talking about movies i'm going to talk about movies after this okay so look i wanted to talk about the cultural influence of the yeti so particularly though at the movies in the 1950s universal pictures were becoming known for their series of monster movies you know those horror films that featured vampires and frankenstein the wolfman creature from mummy, the black lagoon creature from the black lagoon exactly and so uh, eager to keep adding to their creature feature roster in 1957 they made a movie about the abominable snowman and they called it the Abominable Snowman. <laughs> oh, where do they get their ideas? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it stars horror legend Peter Cushing. Ah. And the movie follows a group of explorers as they search for a yeti in the Himalayas. Yeah. But the yeti caught people's imagination and more movies then followed featuring the abominable snowman in fact there have been nearly a hundred yeti movies released since the 1950s movies like half human the story of the abominable snowman yeti the abominable snowman then in 1977 yeti then in 2008 yeti then in 2012 yetis <laughs> again where do they get their ideas <laughs> in 2014 yeti in 2020, <laughs> Yeti. In 2022, <laughs> The Yeti. Oh, interesting. <laughs> then there's The Last Yeti, Day of the Yeti, Rage of the Yeti, Quest for the Yeti, Werewolf and the Yeti, Bigfoots and Yetis, Bigfoot versus Yeti, Yeti versus Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot are those two related is... or are they just two totally different films? <laughs> two different titles. films. Bigfoot is real. Sasquatch versus the Abominable Snowman. Yeti versus Cupacabra, Yeti Massacre, Yeti Assassin, <laughs> To Catch a Yeti, uh, Attack of the Yeti Hand, Yeti or Not, which is my favourite. Yes. <laughs> Yeti or Not. <laughs> Junga the Dancing Yeti, A Yeti in the City, A Yeti A Yeti, city. <laughs> Yeti, city. <laughs> a Yeti in the City, I would watch, in fairness. A Yeti Stole Christmas. <laughs> a, a yeti met a mammoth 
Girl, Yeti, and a Spaceship. Oh, I thought it was going to be Girl Meets Yeti. <laughs> no, that's Yeti After Dark. <laughs> Followed by Yeti, A Love Story, and the sequel, Another Yeti, A Love Story 2, Life on the Streets. <laughs> So those were some of the Yeti movies and Abominable Snowman movies that I could there find. There was a period there where they'd really run out of ideas and there was like five, six consecutive movies called <laughs> Yeti. Yeti. Well, they obviously didn't do their research, did they? Anyway, there you go. There's a whole bunch of movies recommendation for you. Yes, yeah, so there was one other thing that we uh, we actually recorded, but we had to cut out. So well, I was talking about actual plumbing in the Himalaya area, and I was talking about the structure known as a naula. If you imagine a ziggurat, like a pyramid with the step sides, and sort of push it into the earth to make uh, steps down, they, they dig these holes down and they line them with stones. And the, essentially, they, they do this over a water source. So the water bubbles up through the stone, I think, so it filters it. Anyway, this is a, a community water source that's made and managed by by the community and it's kind of considered a, a sort of sacred uh, act or a, an act of great spirituality to provide water so not only is this little pool provided with water for washing and drinking i guess it's also kind of a temple as well so on top of the pool you have a structure so you have it's usually closed on three sides there's a doorway on one side but you'll also find inside statuary so statues of a local deity or possibly vishnu how big is this thing i'm trying to picture it in my mind i'm imagining massive no no the ones i've seen were kind of like a big garden shed some of them can be absolutely enormous it's a hindu thing isn't it yeah it's definitely uh it's definitely this was in uh one of the indian regions of the himalayas so yeah this, these ones were I, I guess hindu well vishnu right. obviously i think they're called hindu. cisterns or the word cistern is you applied to them it was just for me it was really interesting that the water and the sacred became so intertwined uh, and so, yeah, you you not only bathe and get your water from this naula, but it's also a sacred place. Brides will visit the naula for a blessing. People will leave offerings at the naula as well. So for me, there's just an, an interesting confluence between the, the preciousness of water and the kind of spiritual dimension coming together and this bathhouse slash temple exists. There's one called the Bajanathji Kar Naula, which is believed to date back to the 7th century, and it's still in use today. Wow, 7th century. It's not yeah. the same water, though, surely. I think they've, they've swapped the water out a couple of times. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They're all bathing in that since the 7th century. <laughs> yeah, it's got Ugh. a bit nasty now. <laughs> it's just soup. Well, they actually bathe in the thing that they take water from. I, I, my assumption is they take water from it mm. with which to bathe rather than people actually swimming around in it. You should have done your research. It's a surprisingly limited amount of information about the Nowla. I thought it would be very easy to find information, but it was surprisingly a few resources that I found. So if anyone knows about Nowlers out there, please feel free to write in because I found them very interesting. Yeah, let us know. HHEpodcast.com You come for <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I... I... I, I, I dropped my pencil, so I had to bend over and pick it up. And so we have come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Now, Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Uh, yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise? 
Absolutely. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Well, the factual content was correct within the boundaries that Pete imposed upon it, but those boundaries might not necessarily be the correct boundaries. So, I shall give you B minus. Oh, Peter. I'd like a B minus. I can can pin that to my chest. Okay, uh, Your Honour, may we then ask for your verdict on entertainment value? Well, I don't know what you did uh, this one, but some of the sketches were actually funny. Yeah, we thought we'd try something new. <laughs> Make the sketches funny this time. Your sort of your Hermalayas or whatever you call it, the gender-neutral mountains. I like that. And anything scatological is always a hit with me. <laughs> well, then may we have your grade for entertainment value? The grade for entertainment value, I would give B plus. Nice. Wow. Then may I have your verdict on Dursley Factor? Well, I'm always fascinated by the Himalayas and sort of mountaineering stories around there. Damn it. (laughs) But I suppose Pete is lucky. He always gets the subjects that I'm I'm sort of interested in. So uh, we we can call it a zizzagy. You drunk? (laughs) Oh, a zizzagy is when lots of things get in line. Z-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, I think. Zizzagy. I um, learn things on this podcast, uh, and, and also the, uh, the 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 plumber story was was a gem. Uh, Peter, for me, factor, I'll give you a minus. Oh come <gasps> on! I mean, great. That's amazing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is amazing, and you deserve it. <laughs> That's very big of you, Ryan. And so we reach the final verdict, but before the judge passes his ruling, Peter, you have an opportunity now to enter a short plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. This is like you handing me a fragile, precious, ancient heirloom and saying, would you like to juggle with it? No, this is a very precarious state of affairs and I have nothing more to add. (laughs) Okay, well then in that case, your honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. Okay, sorry, Pete. I'm going to dock you a point from the last one and give you B plus. Nice. I um, that's absolutely fine by me, Judge. Peter, 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 got a B plus. Peter, 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 got a B plus. Ryan. Hooray. <laughs> it's great. It's good. It's good. It's good because the next episode's going to be about zombies. So I'm no! bound to get oh, yeah. a high grade. Oh. <laughs> oh dear. All right. There you go. Okay, well, look, there you go. That is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. 
That's right. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation there really goes a long way to helping bring the show to new listeners. As ever, if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, X, previously Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. If you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert whenever we post trivia, pictures, probably Yeti facts, knowing Ryan, news, photos, all sorts of things. We try and put something out. most days. That's right. And we are going to be back again soon with our next spooky Halloween special episode, The Living Dead in Paris during the 19th century. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'll do the noise that that Yeti in Star Wars makes. Goodbye. <laughs> I don't remember that in Star Wars. It's like Chewbacca's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> that's the name. I, could, I couldn't remember it. <laughs> and that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... So I would like to talk about perhaps the most famous and well-known Yeti. <laughs> Jesus. Right. You've really doubled down on this Yeti business. You're it? very lucky. You're very lucky I'm not scoring you. So, in 1956, during the construction of Disneyland in California, all the dirt that they dug up to form the moat around Sleeping Beauty's castle was put into a big giant pile. Now, unfortunately for Disney, the hill became popular, but not with just visitors to the park, but with horny teenagers that went there to treat it as some sort of nighttime lover's lane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which wasn't really the Disney way of things. So they started having some conversations about what to do with the hill. And while Walt Disney himself was working on a movie in Switzerland, he found a postcard picture of the Matterhorn. So he bought the postcard and he sent it to Vic Green, who was his theme park architect, uh, with a simple message on it that just said, Vic, build this, Walt. Which is pretty straightforward. (laughs) And there it is. And there it is. And so, in 1959, the Disneyland ride Matterhorn Bobsleds opened to the public. It's a toboggan ride roller coaster, and it soon became like the most popular ride at the park. But by 1978, the ride had lost a lot of its sort of sheen, right? So Disney bosses started to look at what they could do to give it a bit of an upgrade. And so one of the major changes they made was the introduction of an abominable snowman, a large, white furred primate with dark blue skin, menacing red eyes and a foul temper. They called the Yeti Harold. (laughs) (laughs) And so people enjoyed the ride and Harold gained notoriety as riders evade his clutches. But as time passed and guests became sort of familiar with the ride again, Disney decided to revamp it. And so on May 22nd, 2015, to celebrate the park's 60th anniversary, a redesigned version of the Matterhorn bobsleds ride opened with a renewed focus on Harold. Now, unfortunately, Harold's redesign came in for a bit of criticism. And so, taking on this feedback, Disney then opened another attraction at their Animal Kingdom park called Expedition Everest, uh, within which they introduced another Yeti, different to the Matterhorn Harold, with brown fur and no red eyes. It was much larger, scarier than Harold, and it was described as a vicious, man-eating, bloodthirsty and aggressive monster that lives on Mount Everest, destroying railways and attacking guests. And they called it Betty. 
<laughs> and Bessie is one of the largest animatronics in all of the Disneyland parks. It was originally designed to lunge five foot towards riders while swinging its arms, but they changed that after the mechanism started to wear out and they were like, let's just keep it stand there st still and we'll put a strobe light by it to sort of simulate movement instead. And that resulted in Betty getting a new nickname, the Disco Yeti. Betty, Betty, the <laughs> Disco Yeti. That is awesome. Yeah. But despite Betty's popularity, Harold still remains the fan favourite. And when the Matterhorn bobsleds ride reopened after the COVID pandemic, Disneyland's Park's TikTok account announced the event with an interview with Harold. And the interview goes like this. Well, we won't take up too much of your time. We just wanted to know how you feel about the Matterhorn bobsleds reopening. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. And he is said to be central to a future Disney Plus movie, which will be based on the Matterhorn bobsleds ride. I'm going to guess it's going to be called Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and apparently it's going to feature a lovesick Harold looking for a Yeti mate. Hopefully, Aww. Betty the Disco Yeti. Yeah, I mean, that's a match made in heaven and you've got somewhere to meet. <laughs> now do you believe in Yetis, Paul? Sorry, have you finished? <laughs> I do not think you've won him over one iota there, right? He's the abominable judge. Thank you, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> come on, laundry, come on. <laughs>